0: the year 1953. A plane touches down at Smithies Airport in Sydney. On board is an American named Lee Gordon. The Australian music scene will never be the same again. From then until now, these are the stories. G'day, g'day, this is Sheldon the Kangaroo Kid, and you're listening to the All Australian Music Stories. This is part two of my chat with Cole Lofnan, and it focuses on his time with Ayers Rock, the Daily Wilson Big Band, and also working with the likes of Peter Allen, Frank Sinatra, and Sammy Davis Jr., just to name a few. At one stage while recording with Ayers Rock in America, Cole even had David Bowie and Stevie Wonder checking out what he was up to in the studio. From lead singer of the Deltones to blowing a saxophone and supporting groups such as Backman Turner Overdrive on a US stadium tour in front of 35,000 people, Cole's story is a truly unique musical journey. I hope you enjoy listening to the career of Cole Lofnan.
1: Oh well it's early in the morning and it's time to make a start and I put my polysurf surfboard on the rack upon my car. I Head down to the surfside where the waves are breaking fine I'm gonna catch a mountain but I won't go down the mind You gotta walk the plank, ride the hook Corner left and right and keep it nice
2: and tight And now the time is drawing near, you're moving down the wall How steady as she goes, you got your toes upon the nose And now you're hanging five, hanging
3: five, hanging five toes. The upon the Malibu. bit closer, and you will see, hey, you'll see, I was meant for, you did, and you were meant for me, let our love grow stronger, as the
4: years go by, let our love last longer, than the stars in the sky.
1: I just went from one thing to the other pretty much straight away. I left the Deltones. Next minute, I was playing at the Coogee Hotel with the soulmates. And that's, so that's how it happened. I didn't, you know, choose to leave because I didn't like them. There was something else I had to do. Right, yes. And so that was it. It was time to move to the next chapter, you know.
0: You're one of the most high-profile lead singers in the country, and then you've you decided to become a sideman. Was that a hard decision to make?
1: No, not really. I I always was interested in the other side of it I'd listen to jazz right through the deltones I used to go and jazz clubs whenever we'd go to Melbourne I'd go and hear all the guys play like the some of the really well-known Sydney guys like John po- Pochet and Bernie McGann and Dave McRae and all these jazz guys Alan Turnbull um, who I later got to play with, all of them. Okay. And so I'd go down as the, the deltone and then um, listen, sit in the audience and listen to the jazz. So I was, I've was i always been interested in that sort of music. I think I started in pop music, but it was destined that I was going to do this eventually. That's how I it would have been hard felt. to keep a low
0: profile being, you know, the lead singer of the deltone, so.
1: Yeah, well, there was a lot of proving to be done, I guess. Um, you know, somebody goes from that and they start playing saxophone, they expect you to do it well. (laughs) Uh, And so, you know, I worked at it and I practiced very hard and I still practice today and I'm still trying to get better. And (laughs) that's the way, (laughs) that's the way it goes.
0: (laughs) So by this stage, you'd married your wife, Rhonda, you're now wife of 40 years, more than 40 years. And as you said, you're headed more towards the arranging and and composing side of things, including a special with uh, performers such as John Farnham and Marsha Hines. Can you tell us uh, about this side of your career a bit more?
1: Um, that was much later. Okay, The, yep. the stuff with um, John Farnham and Marsha Hines was in the 80s. Okay. Uh, Debbie Byrne, they, they, uh, Rick Birch, who uh, produced the Commonwealth Games, music for the Commonwealth Games. I was the producer for that, um, many of those uh, Commonwealth Games. He was a producer at the ABC and he asked me to be musical director for this TV show, and arranger, and so uh, that's how that happened. But I'd worked on Marsha's stuff in LA when I was there in um, the 70s for Robbie Porter. So I'd done arrangements in Los Angeles when I was living there for Marsha because she recorded her Shining album in Los Angeles. Um yep. A lot of it, anyway. A lot of the overdubs were done then. So I'd had that connection. And you'd mentioned
0: earlier about um, the Coogee Bay Hotel. You, so you're now arranging, you're doing session work. However, in 1968, you joined the Soulmates, who were the house band at the Coogee Bay Hotel. This band had a new lead singer every couple of weeks. And it, you know, the lead singers would be, be the stars of the day, Dig Richards, Johnny O'Keefe. You must have been some amazing gigs.
1: Oh, yeah. It was a great band, too. We, we played some really good stuff, and uh, it was a good band. I ended up very good friends and had a lifetime friendship with uh, Jimmy Doyle, the guitar player from Airs Rock. Uh, he was in the band and got me into the, the soulmates. You okay, know? yeah. So uh, he sort of, when I left the Deltones, he said, hey, there's a job here, mate, if you want it. So I went in there and, and that gave me the opportunity to develop what I was doing on the saxophone. I was still singing a little bit there, still doing some vocal stuff. And uh, I still did until pretty much airs rock. I was doing a little bit of vocal stuff and I recorded one vocal track on the second album, Beyond. Um, After that, I haven't really done much vocal stuff.
0: You become a member of the Jazz Fusion Combo, the Cole Nolan Soul Syndicate, and release the album Whatever It's Worth. You write the song Shades of McSoul and also sing the lead vocals on By the Time I Get the Phoenix, a Jimmy Webb song. Were you reluctant to sing the lead?
1: No, no, not at all, because, I, um, as I said, I kept going. After I left the Deltones, I, I was still doing vocal work. I was working as a studio backing vocalist for a lot of stuff with the Claire Poole Singers. Okay, yeah. Uh, Claire Poole was, has just passed away recently and was a real, is a real legend. As far as vocalists, she's been so um, I- inspirational to people, and there's many singers now who owe so much to Claire. Uh, she left quite a legacy so she ran a, a, the Clarepool Singers and they were going long before you know I left the Deltones but so during the time and after uh, I did a lot of studio work before I started really you know getting my saxophone chops together I was getting them together and so during the time I was sort of playing and singing and I was doing a lot of vocal backing stuff so I did that from pretty much right through till at least 1970 I'd say yeah. So you're still keeping up the vocal chops, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. I don't keep them up these days. I've got none. (laughs) They're gone. But, uh, you know, I don't sing much now.
0: (laughs) So when was the last time you sung live? Um, Would have been with Ayers Rock. Really? Yeah. Yeah, that long ago. Almost a lifetime ago.
1: Well, you set a certain standard for yourself with doing anything, and you want to do it well. And I don't feel I could do it well. So, you know, once you stop doing something, it's hard to get back into it and accept the standard that you're at. You want the standard to be like it was when you're at your best. And you can't be at your best if you're not doing it all the time. It's like anything else.
0: So whether singing in the shower, singing in the car or whatever, when would have been the last time that your son come a little bit closer?
1: (laughs) Nineteen sixty. Seven, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> We've got to get
0: you up for some karaoke or something.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, no, you wouldn't want to hear it now, it's definitely.
0: So you're one of the founding members of, a, of another legendary Australian group, the Daily Wilson Big Band. As a popular as the Daily Wilson Big Band was, and it played to mostly sold-out venues, it must have been hard to make a living uh, playing in a band that had up, up to 18 musicians on the stage at one time.
1: Well, in the beginning, the band was a rehearsal band. Um, started in 1968 and we rehearsed at the stage club in Redfern. So in the initially we didn't have any gigs. It was just a big band got, that got together by Warren and, and Ed and they pulled all those good guys, you know, the best guys that we had. At that stage I was, you know, getting starting to get my chops together and I was getting really practising a lot and all that stuff. So they gave me the opportunity to do it, which was great. And we did our first gig at the stage club, and it was fantastic. The band came out, and we played this big chord, and, and then just it just went off. You know, people loved it. And after that, the band started to get a bit of notoriety, and then eventually Benson and Hedges sponsored us. So we got sponsorship. Okay, so yeah. once you get sponsorship, people are giving you money, and you know, you can manage to work. Yeah, but it always is. It's always hard. A big band, you know, big bands now play for nothing. Right, you know, yeah. Because the, you, you can't get paid with a big band now. It's impossible. Uh, in those days, no, we were earning money and we were doing a lot of uh, tours and recordings. And
0: uh, With recordings, you made some great albums with uh, the Daily Wilson big band, uh, Live at the Cell Block and the exciting Daily Wilson big band. What were some of your favourite songs from this this era?
1: Well, I, I liked all the stuff we did. You know, there was all the tunes were great. Uh, Warren and Ed wrote a lot of the tunes together. A lot of the range was together, Well, Ed was the person who scored them. Um, and I got to write an original tune of mine on the exciting Daily Wilson band, I think called Three for All, which, uh, which you know, turned out pretty well, which I was happy that I was able to get one of my own compositions on. Then it's instrumental again, you know. Uh, the Daily Wilson Band was instrumental, basically, but we had guest vocalists like Marsha and uh, Kerry Burdell. I think the the most exciting album we've made was by far, would have been the first one. It was it got a lot of uh, praise from people everywhere, even overseas. You know, a lot of musicians that I've ran into that are overseas heard that album when it came out and were really surprised that Australia was at that standard, you know, which was pretty good to hear, you know. And having your own
0: compositions on these albums must have made you feel good as a you know as an arranger composer. Oh that yeah, these these musicians from the other side of the fence had now accepted you. You, you weren't the dirty rocker anymore. You were. <laughs> uh,
1: <you're... laughs> well, I was uh, just uh, I was still a rocker somewhere in there, but uh, a jazzy rocker. Um, yeah, no, you know I've always been happy with everything I've done. You know, I think the more you you do in music, the more you can give to music. You know, if you. If you played a bit of rock, if you played a bit of this, you know what it's like. If you stick to one thing, you might get good at that, but you don't experience other things. So I've always tried to, you know, look into other things and I enjoy other styles of music. If something's good, I'll enjoy it. Okay, You yes. know, if if people are playing well, they're good musicians and the vocalist is singing in tune and it's got a nice voice, you can enjoy it. If If the vocalist is, you know, terrible... And the band are substandard guys. Well, it doesn't get my attention, right, regardless okay. of yep. the style. But if you know, if it's a country band and it's and it's really happening, it can sound fantastic. So it's good it doesn't music. It's good matter music. what the style yep. is. It, it can be country. It can be rock. It can be classical. You get, you know, bad classical musicians playing that are pretending to be good classical musicians. I can soon hear it and I'll turn it off. You know, so it's good. I just like music in general, and you know, I can appreciate it for what it is.
0: And you spent several years studying and travelling in the USA and and the UK. This must have been an important time for your career growing as a musician.
1: Yeah, I, I, I spent a bit of time um, studying saxophone mainly over there um, with uh, two people. One guy was called Vic Morosco and the other one is a, is a real legend. As far as teachers go, his name is Joe Allard and he's taught so many great jazz musicians and saxophonists uh, that are very, very famous, so I was very lucky. He taught all the guys in the Glenn Miller sax section. Uh, he had the whole lot of them as students at one time. So We
0: get into it a bit later, but you, you started teaching. So I'm sure your students, you know, have benefited from you learning off these masters and you've been able to impart your wisdom onto these students. So it's it's forever
1: ongoing. It's one of those things that you pass on. You know, I wanted to find out how it worked and, uh, you know, I'd got so far on my own. But, you know, when you, you know, all these great tennis players have coaches, well, why do they have coaches? They know how to hit the ball and play a shot, but they need somebody to sort of go, oh, not like that. Yeah, I think you should do that just to refine the <laughs> edges. Go, oh, yeah. okay. Yeah, <laughs> All definitely. of a sudden, it's a little bit better. In
0: 1973, you joined Airs Rock, a band that were going to lay claim as Australia's leading jazz rock band. You were one of the first bands signed to Michael gadinski's Mushroom Records. How did the signing with the Mushroom label come about?
1: Well, when when I joined Airs Rock, it was um, it was I'd come from London. I, I was in London at the time, uh, and I come. Jimmy Doyle rang me up and said, "Look, we've got this terrific band, you know, with Mark Kennedy and and Duncan Maguire, and you know, would you know, do you want to come back?" and uh, you know it was getting it was too cold in England anyway <laughs> I've been there for a year and I couldn't have stood another winter I don't think and so this sounded pretty good so went back and uh you know the band started off sort of pretty much like a um a rehearsal band you know we weren't really doing much in the way of gigs and then we started doing a couple of gigs and then of course the mushroom thing just come a little later than that.
0: With Airs Rock you record the first album named Big Red Rock you recorded this album over two days at the Armstrong Studios in Melbourne before a live audience of friends and family to think you laid this album down and in two days is incredible how did you achieve this
1: oh look we we just went in and we did it all very very quickly because by that time by the time we recorded we'd uh, really been doing a lot of gigs and a lot of playing you know back in those days you know musicians work every day there was a musician's job then was a full-time job. Now it's a bit of a part-time job, uh and people often have other jobs other than music. Well, back then you just had music, that was it. So we were playing all the time, doing gigs all the time and never stopped. So we were match fit, you know, we were really fit. We were ready to go and so we went in there, we just recorded it and was in front of an audience live uh there was you know no overdubbing and you know it was all pretty much down straight away and that was it what we heard was what we got it was all we wanted to get that live feeling that we were able to get on stage and uh, try and transfer it to recording you know which is often hard let's take a listen to lady montego
0: guys were known as a uh, a group of musicians musicians a serious band but there's a song on the album crazy boys the hamburger song when you listen to a song like that it's <laughs> obviously you guys didn't take yourselves too seriously
1: <laughs> definitely not there's a great story behind that we uh Jimmy Doyle and myself, when Jimmy was a backing guitarist for the Deltones, that's how we come to meet. He he was our guitarist. And uh, we'd always talk about music and jazz and different stuff and about one day playing together. And on the way back from uh, Wollongong, we used to do this gig down there and we'd come back and we'd go to this hamburger joint at Central to get a hamburger at like, you know, one o'clock in the morning or something. We'd come back and we'd go in there and they they were Greek guys, you know, and they were funny, you know, and they'd they'd have this funny, I like, Please hello, mate. How are you? You know, you what? What do you want, Wayne? Please, you know, you want a hamburger or you want a fish and chips or what do you want? And you know, we'd 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 start doing the well, mate. Give us a give us a you know a, a glass of fish and chips, thanks. You know, and stuff like yep. silly stuff. You know, and they'd lie, oh, you boys are crazy. You crazy boys. So that's how that's how the title come okay, up. Okay. Yep. It was dedicated to them, really, to the hamburger joint, which burnt down. Sometime later, it burnt down. But they were funny guys. They really were good sports, you know, and, and good there's,
0: cooks. <laughs> there's a line in it, uh, ordering a Gdinski burger. is a uh, Yeah, the Gdinski
1: be... burger, yeah, that come in there.
0: Would it be tastier? or a bit tough, the Gdinski burger? Uh,
1: yeah, well, uh, Michael took it, you know, he he took it pretty well. You know, Gdinski burger, hold the bacon. because he's Jewish, of course, okay, so, you yes, know, that course. was the joke. And then Dr. Hop on top of us was the other the greek gynecologist he yeah. was the, the other so it was pretty silly and it's a very simple tune with a riff and and just virtually hardly any lyrics but uh we had fun with it it was crazy and we were able to use a lot of uh electronic gadgets which on the recording you can hear it's po- totally bizarre yes uh, <laughs> it's
0: gonna be one of the most bizarre strong songs ever recorded in Australia yeah well, it's pretty
1: pretty out there yeah but 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 we had so that's where the uh, origin of the okay. story comes from, the Hamburger Joint.
2: This song's dedicated to a Hamburger
1: Joint that burned down in Sydney. Sending the crazy boys. Oh, listen, to, mate, give on the us a nice burger, please, a whole of bacon, please. Oh, oh mate. mate, how you going? How oh, hey, you doing oh,
4: tonight,
0: nice, mate?
1: Oh, not a bad, I can't complain. Yeah, you have so something you to eat know.
4: tonight, oh, mate, over here? Oh, here. Don't what, don't what, what have you got? Oh, oh, well, I'll tell you what,
0: I've got a nice and big, juicy here. glass yeah. of fish and the chips.
1: Oh, okay. hey, isn't your name Hop on Top of Us? That's right. You know me? Oh, your yeah. father, yes, the Dr. Hop on Top of Us. You know the him? You're a Greek gynecologist. That's
4: right. Yes, I really know.
2: Let's have a nice hand
0: Far removed from the three-minute pop song uh, that you had previously sung with the deltones and, and the vocal groups, Ayers Rock had the luxury of being able to expand on musical ideas. Ayers Rock never appeared to be in a rush to finish a song until all avenues had been explored. This must have been a great musical freedom to have.
1: It was very creative, you know. It was a very creative band. We had a terrific combination. Mark Kennedy on drums, who's fabulous. And Duncan and him had played Duncan McGuire and Electric Bass, who'd played together in other bands, uh, Spectrum and uh, King Harvest and other bands, they'd played together. So they were rock solid together. That bass and drums were just just like one person playing. And uh, we had Jimmy Doyle, who was phenomenal feel on the guitar, Chris Brown on the other guitar, and myself. And It just seemed to gel It was a combination that Once we got together We found we really had something We could read each other's mind on stage And so there was a lot of improvisation I think that was one of the things That separated us from A lot of the other bands They improvised a little But we improvised a lot And so some of our tunes Would go for, you know ages you know know, most people would be doing you know four minute songs our songs would go for 10 or 11 minutes well there's some songs
0: that have intros that go for you know one or two minutes at a time that's just the intros of the uh, the song let's have a listen to nostalgic blues remember this is all recorded live all of airs rock are going off here and just take a listen to jimmy doyle wow
3: Show me
0: And in regards to the title track of the album, you wrote the song "Big Red Rock." When listening to a song, if if you close your eyes at the opening of this song, you can almost smell the rain falling on Uluru as you know, as the lightning and the thunder rumbles by. Being able to produce such vivid musical landscapes must have been satisfying to you.
1: It was. It it really was. When when I wrote that, of course, you know the band was Airs Rock, so that was the you know the title was already there and because the rock was big and does go red uh you know at sundown, it gave a picture of what it would be like. I've never actually been to where's rock. I've flown over it, uh but I've never actually I wanted to go there one day but I've never I've flown over and seen it but I've never gone there. But I studied a bit of Aboriginal music recordings to listen to things to try and get an idea of what their music was all about and to try and get some of that influence if you want. And then Jimmy Doyle was fabulous at making a didgeridoo sound on his guitar he had this pedal that he used the wah-wah pedal and 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 a sort of a distortion and stuff and he could he could really make the thing sound like a didgeridoo so he used to do that as a bit of a joke before i started writing the thing i heard him wow wow, go you know doing this stuff. So when I got the idea for it, I thought, oh yeah, we'll, we'll get him to do the didgeridoo sound. And, and then the sounds sort of evolved and the arrangement I had to work on to get the structure of the arrangement and, and, and get the melodies and get the tunes and all stuff sorted out. So it just evolved. inspired each other that band i think that's what happened i think when you're inspired and you're working with people that uh you admire musically and that you know can do anything musically which is more important because you can write things but if people can't play them well you can't get it played you need to know what the person is capable of doing and we knew each other's uh, musical you know uh, ability so you sort of had limitless boundaries amongst the group. Yeah, yeah. and But a lot of the sounds, you know, we had electronic sounds we were all wired up, you know, going through amplifiers. I was, the saxophone was going through. I, I When I worked on stage, I worked like a guitar player. I had a wah-wah pedal and I had, you know, a phaser and I had you know, all these other stuff uh, connected into an amp. So I played and I had my little pickups on the saxophone to pick up the sound. So, uh We all had those sort of gimmicks and stuff, you know. I don't think it would have sounded like that without that. You couldn't do it acoustically.
0: This song's titled Going Home. After the release of Big Red Rock, Michael Godinsky heads to America with a stack of his label's records, including bands such as Skyhooks. He presents his lot to the president of a and Records, Jerry Moss, and the only group Moss is interested in signing is Ayers Rock. What was Godinski's reaction?
1: Well, it was one of shock, I think. I mean, I have to say that. I mean, Michael went over with uh, um, with a whole you know, bunch of stuff of mushroom artists, and uh, the artists of the time, and I think he he liked our band, but you know we were a bit way out, I think for Michael you know we, we sort of were a bit extreme i think I think he he liked it, but it wasn 't his thing, and so I think when he went there we 'd done the album, and i I think he thought the album was good and all that, but i I, I think it, he, I, I I really believe he thought they would pick something else that 's my opinion of it because he was very uh, he was very vocal when he rang up, you know, that when he went to, to Jerry Moss and Herb Alpert. And um, both of those guys uh, were sort of jazz lovers. You know, the A&M label was had some tremendous super tramp and, you know, they didn't really have pop any bubblegum stuff, it, was, it wasn't really, they, they had pretty sophisticated stuff on there. And Herb, Herb Alpert was with the Tijuana Brass and was a jazz trumpet player. So um, when they brought out the album to, them, I think Michael probably, you know, gave it to them and said, you know, here they are, and they went through them and they liked ours. And anyway, he was surprised, I think, because he rang uh, Jimmy Doyle up from L.A. And, of course, it was, you know, morning in L.A. and it was, you know, three o'clock in the morning here or something, whatever. And he read, Jimmy, Jimmy. He said, you'll never believe it. They liked the album. Jimmy said, well, so they should. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Because, I mean, Michael was, he was quite surprised. uh, He he was thrilled, of course. He was happy that they'd done it because it, it put him you know, in America, and it's sort of, he got his foot in the door, and the rest is history. He's been a very successful man since, but he I think he was surprised. Yeah. I think he was, yeah. yeah.
0: And so, Ayers Rock now heads to the USA with a $60,000 budget to record your second album, Beyond. Now, $60,000 back in 1974 was an absolute small fortune. You guys must have been beside yourselves with this opportunity.
1: Yeah, that was right. When When we arrived there, they picked us up in a stretch limo. And they had a cooler thing, like an Esky type thing in the back with Foster's beer, the big ones, the great, you know, those big, they export. Okay, yes. big sort of bigger than a normal can like about twice as big as a can so then it was uh the royal treatment after that yeah it was uh fantastic the studio was you know amazing well you mentioned the
0: studio and you head into the uh, famed record plant in la uh, the recording situation must have been a little bit different to what you'd previously been used to in the in the deltones and the Crescent days you know at the uh, festival studios at piermont
1: oh look <laughs> Look, a big step up from there, but, you know, recording studios in Sydney by the time we got to LA were pretty good. It was the early 70s and things were good, but... When we got to LA and went into the record plant, it was like stepping into a spaceship, you know, and going somewhere else. It was, the sound was unbelievable. The equipment, the studio, the acoustics of the studio, the fact that they were so fussy about when we recorded Beyond, because we'd all recorded Big Red Rock, so we recorded Beyond, the second album in mm-hmm. record plant. They were so fussy because I play a bit of keyboard, so um, we used Fender Rhodes on a lot of the tracks, just little bits of... pieces I play and so you know they'd get one they used to hire they hired stuff in LA they had these big hire companies that hired anything musically so they never had anything in the studio they didn't have a Rhodes there they had a piano of course uh, but they didn't have anything and they didn't have a drum kit and they didn't have anything they'd hire everything in or the drummer would bring his own kit in our case we were visiting we had no equipment so it was just fantastic so you know I'd play the electric piano and the guy the producer would say no 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 that one doesn't sound right so you know ring the company bring another one over so I brought about three pianos over they were so fussy about things even with Mark Kennedy's drums very fussy and he always you know had a great sounding drums and they you know I think they made him change the snare drum or something got a different sort of snare drum and Mark was always very particular and got a great sound out of anything but they were very fussy about the way they set up and all the mics and everything so it was it was very different and when you heard the results and I listened to to that album and I've heard it you know a few years ago I haven't listened to that album for a while beyond but the the sounds on it are very very good for the time and uh, really classy and that was one of the things that I couldn't believe that it was you know just fantastic sound major sound better than what you were not as good better
0: So highlighting the environment that you guys are in at the record plant, down the hallway recording an album with Stevie Wonder, Airs Rock had people dropping in to watch your sessions, such as David Bowie and the Eagles. Even even Bowie came back for a second listen, apparently. This must have been some of the sort of the pinch me moments for you guys.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it was. It was, you know, we got a lot of attention because we were doing pretty progressive stuff. And I suppose because we were from Australia, they probably thought, Well, how, you know, these guys, you know, they're living with kangaroos. And, you know, living in the outback. How do they get to be able to do this? You know, I mean, you know, it was early days for Aussies and uh, we were pretty much one of the first, well, we were the first band to sign an international contract overseas, um, first Australian band. And this has come before the days of LRB
0: and... and oh, yeah, long before being, that.
1: Yep. You know, when we went there, they, they probably just were curious because Australia hadn't, you know, now Australia's very well known. we got the best, our actors, we've practically taken over over there. Exactly. All the actors. Yeah. <laughs> And, uh, you know, we've had Olivia Newton, John and Peter Allen and all the rest of the stuff. But then there was virtually no one. So they we got a bit of attention because of that. And then you guys are doing such
0: experimental music as musicians. As you said, they were probably interested to see, well,
1: listen yeah. to these sounds. How are yeah, these guys well, doing this? Fuse of music was happening then. You know, there were bands like Miles Davis was doing it, starting to uh, fuse jazz and rock together uh, and then Weather Report. And then so it was the early days of uh, jazz fusion and uh, the fact that i think the fact that we come from australia was curious that there would be a band being capable of playing at that standard because they probably had a view of australia like most americans did back then that you know it was just sort of a place out you know some backwater. yeah they didn't know you know I used to think it was Austria sometimes. <laughs> okay, know. yes. You come from, oh, is that Austria? You know, oh no, it's a, you know, they didn't really know. But then, you know, I think it's different now. <laughs> and did you um, have
0: much interaction with David Bowie or Stevie Wonder? Did you have any conversations we with these in, guys? Well,
1: I can't remember ever having a, any conversation with David Bowie. I know he was there. I saw him in the control booth when we were in the studio. I saw him and recognized him. And somebody said he'd come back a second time, but I didn't see that. But the guys told me that he did. Uh, Stevie Wonder, we actually met because Stevie was recording in the in the studio next to the big one where we were. We were in the big studio because we had strings and everything, um, orchestra and stuff. And uh, Stevie was in the overdub studio, which is a smaller one next to the big main studio. So um somebody said, Oh come and do you want to meet Stevie Wonder? Well, yeah, okay, yeah, let's go and so we went in and he was great and he was overdubbing everything. He was he'd overdubbed drums and he'd overdubbed you know somebody was just doing keyboards when we spoke to him and you know yeah he was compliment he said oh you guys sound good or something like that you know and 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 uh, but he was uh he was busy doing what he's doing so we weren't in there for too long but we actually got to meet him and shake his hand and uh it was uh, something special and as one of the musical geniuses of the uh
0: the 20th century something- absolutely
1: yeah oh yeah yeah you're in you're well aware you're in the in the company of someone great yeah, when, when you meet somebody like that
0: So, you, with the album Beyond, you write the title track as well as Place to Go and Angel in Disguise. You also wrote the arrangements for the band and a 23-piece orchestra featuring the host of top LA musicians. You also conduct the orchestra in the studio. Do you class this album as some of your finest work?
1: Yes, I'd say it's as far as recording my own things, which I haven't done a lot of, uh, apart from uh, what I've done recently with smaller groups, with something big. I did a lot of arranging uh, before I left. You know, I was on staff from 1969 to 72 at, at Channel 9. Yes, you know, I'm pretty pleased with what went on and um, it certainly was, you know, nice to showcase your own compositions and have a nice big string section and such a great bunch of uh, musicians, you know. That I had the top guys, you know, all the guys that have played. A lot of them were older and a lot of them had played on some of the greatest film scores that have come out of America, you know. So I just uh, was a big step up from working with what I'd done in, in Sydney. You know, the strings were good here, but they were a lot better over there I uh, had the top guys and um so it was fantastic so it was a great opportunity I'd had I'd sort of done my apprenticeship if you want channel 9 with under Bob Beatles young who was the musical director of channel 9 for Bandstand and a lot of other shows and uh, when I left the deltones he said to me look he said there's a job for you if you want it with the staff arrangers, you know the part-time staff I can give you you know an arrangement and see how you go and and then you know if it's any good I'll give you some more and so I started and they gave me more and I was end up doing you know three a week which is a lot of arrangements to do for orchestra because they had strings and they had brass and percussion choir and a lot of it was um, covers but so I got I really did my apprenticeship for three years and, uh, and that was great. So i learned learnt how to write through necessity. I was pretty much self-taught uh, arranging, you know, doing things. But, you know, I worked hard and I used to sleep very little and I was doing studio work and playing and arranging and trying to uh, be a family man and trying to do everything at once. So it was busy times, but you're young so you can do it. Wouldn't like to bad. do attempt it, it now. Yeah. So
0: on on the album Beyond, there's other songs on the album such as Song for Darwin and the very funky instrumental with a great title Catch an Emu. How did you decide what songs were to be instrumentals and when to add lyrics?
1: Well, Chris wrote that and uh, Chris Brown wrote Catch an Emu and uh, so it was instrumental. I mean, basically songs lead lead themselves to be uh, vocals. You know, sometimes, sometimes a song has got a story or usually should have a story and the story usually uh, is the reason for the being of the song. Whereas an instrumental, it doesn't necessarily have to have, it has to have a title, but the title depends on what uh, the person sees it at. It could have several titles. Whereas if a song, it's about something, well, generally it's got to have a title related to that. So um, most of the time, Chris didn't write many instrumentals, but um, I wrote most of the instrumental stuff. Uh, And Place to Go was, uh, was part vocal as well. So that would have been the last... Recording, I ever did as a vocalist. Okay, yes. Yeah, yep. that would have been the last one. It was uh, not much lyrics in it. You know, I was never much for writing lyrics. I wasn't that good at it. I was more you're better at, you know, writing the musical part of it. <laughs>
0: rock got to tour the usa with uh, some of the biggest acts of the day and these included backman turner overdrive the jay giles band and status quo one performance you you did at seattle
1: was at a stadium with a crowd of thirty five thousand people who were you supporting at this show that's a good i think it was backman turner overdrive in that one, yeah, I think it was. Um, I'd have to check, you'd have to check Wikipedia, yeah, <laughs> airs rock article in Wikipedia I might tell you. Um, I think it was Backman Turner, Turner Overdrive. We did uh, a lot of you know big shows, and that was one of the bigger ones thirty five thousand. Um it was amazing. You know, the audiences were fantastic over there. They loved uh the band. They really we got incredible reception and it was very exciting to be playing to, you know, such huge audiences, massive just you'd look out and it was like you know, being in a sporting well most of them are sporting arenas. Um well, they call a sea of
0: humanity. Yeah.
1: It's fabulous.
0: The band even got play, paid not to play. You were, <laughs> you were scheduled to support Rod Stewart. However, you were paid a, you know, a tidy sum and given front row tickets to Rod's show not to perform. What's the story here? And did you guys actually attend
1: the show? Uh, yeah, we 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 actually got tickets for the show, uh, and we got paid a thousand dollars or something, um, whatever it was, or a fee. What what happened? It was we were supposed to go on the show. Uh, we were scheduled to do the gig, but his setup was so huge and so complicated that they decided it was too hard to reconfigure the stage and all that, and 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 change everything. And it would take too long to put it all back. So they they asked us very nicely, and you know we're okay. Uh, with it, by that time we were pretty buggered from being on the road. You know, we were doing one night as travelling across America, and part by plane, part by road. So we, I think when we got to that one, we were, we were looking forward to a night's sleep. So I think it come at a good time. But we went to see the show and he did a great show and is very professional, thoroughly professional. And as you can imagine, the production was very, very good. But he used to have, you know, like great big semi-trailers of gears, like two big long ones, great full of gear that used to travel around. And so the setup, his setup was enormous. So that was the reason they, um, it wasn't because there was a clash of Music or something, and he didn't want a a band like that on it. We had nothing to do with that. This is the title track to the album Beyond.
0: You leave Airs Rock in in 77 and you continue working as a, uh, a gun for hire, arranging, composing and session work. The English musician Georgie Fame started making uh, yearly visits to Australia and he formed the Southern Hemisphere version of his band, the Blue Flames. He called them the Aussie Blue Flames. You also recorded an album, No Worries with Fame. How long did you work with Georgie Fame?
1: Uh, Georgie fame I started around about the time I started the Conservatory in 1978 uh, so Georgie come out here that was the first time he'd come out and uh, we put a band together and it was it was, wasn't called it was just Georgie fame so it wasn't called anything in the beginning it evolved because he had a band called the Blue Flames which is famous in UK but we didn't become the Aussie Blue Flames straight away you know he sort of we we're just a band backing him up. So we did that. And we did from 1978 till 2005, I think was the last time he come here. It was continual. It was for a long time. It was uh, every year he'd come out and we'd do the basement. We'd play the basement and we'd do a national tour. And so I don't know how many times I played with him. It's got to be, could be 20 times or more. 2020, I mean, yeah. not yep. not times because we play all over the place and do a lot of gigs. He was great. His his um his music's interesting because it's jazzy and it's blues. It's 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 jazz and blues a mixture, and that's what he does. And he does a few things that are funky, sort of rockish, but it always has a jazz sort of flavor to it. Well, every
2: evening. This work suit I call my baby And us go watch it with do I'm some movies, but she don't seem to do And then she asks me, why don't I come to her flat And have some supper, and let the evening pass five By taking records, besides a groovy high five I say yeah, yeah, that's what I say I say yeah, yeah, my baby loves me she gets me feeling so fine she loves me She makes me know that she's mine And when she kisses I feel the fire get hot She never misses She gives it all that she's got And when she asks me if everything is okay I got my answer The only thing I can say I say yeah yeah That's what I say I say yeah yeah We'll play a melody And turn the lights down low So sort not knock and see We gotta do that thing We gotta do that, we gotta do that And there'll be no one else alive in all the world Except you and me, yeah, 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 yeah Pretty baby, I never need you to throw It's hard to tell you, because I'm trembling so But pretty baby, I want you
1: all of my own
0: He's a contemporary of a, a Van Morrison or or something like that at those times. Uh, he's
1: different to Van Morrison. He's uh, quite a bit different. They do work together, but they're quite different. I'd say Van's not so not so that much that way. Uh, George is a more uh, a, he's a keyboard player and he plays very good blues organ. You know, he just sounds fantastic. So. I think he's come more out of the jazz thing where Van Morrison's possibly come out more out of the pop. But uh, I love working with George. He was great. He was a great guy. Uh, it was a great time and we had a great band. And the this, the Aussie Blue Flames sort of name evolved. So he bestowed the honor of, of the Aussie Blue Flames because he got to know us and we become friends rather than just musos that have backed him up, you know.
0: And um, in 1979, you joined the teaching staff of the Sydney Conservatorium of Music, and you're still teaching there. Obviously, this is a, a role you enjoy.
1: Oh, very much. Yeah, yeah. I started doing that 1978, as you say. Um, and it was after I'd studied uh, in America with Joe Allard and uh, Vic Mosco. And so I wanted to sort of, I'd got really got into this stuff on the saxophone. And, you know, I was really interested in trying to, you know, uh, pass the knowledge on. And it was time to do something different again. You know, I I didn't need the job for work because I was already, already working a lot as a session musician. And there were a lot of recording sessions then. Back then the studios were busy every day and there were things going on like that. No Nobody can believe it now, if I tell my students they can't comprehend you did three or four recording sessions a day, they say what you know people do three or four recording sessions. Even the good ones, maybe a month or something. Now you might do one a week or something. Then it was just every day you were in the recording studio, and that's what you did and worked overnight. So I didn't. I wanted to do it. I always was sort of interested in teaching, and uh, I'd started teaching privately at home and all that before that. And so the job come up, and uh, I took it on, and uh, I'm still there today, only part time. I've always only been part time because I was too busy to take on any full time job.
0: And uh, you perform regularly with uh, renowned new zealand jazz pianist judy bailey and even toured asia in the 1980s this tour must have been different to the uh, the tour in asia you did with the deltones
1: <laughs> yeah yeah it was a little bit different we we uh, did two two tours one i think it was 81 and 86 i think we did two tours of uh asia we did india and uh malaysia uh, penang oh god we went all over the place you know it was just uh, Indonesia did a lot of tourism. We were, we went there for the uh, for the Australian Tourist Commission. So we went. To, we played embassies and we played live gigs. We even played the uh, King's daughter in Thailand, the princess. Yeah, the King, who's uh, I believe is gone now. He's passed away. He was a saxophone player, the King. Okay, yeah. so you would have been a a favorite of his. Yeah. Well, we never saw him, of course. He was the King, so the King <laughs> didn't make that many appearances. But uh, but his daughter was. Uh, we played for her once, and uh, uh, it's some amazing gigs over there and then we did a lot of work here and she's still going she's 81 and she's still got so much energy and still such an amazing musician and so uh, we still work together still do gigs and I did a gig with her in September, um, and we've, we'll have some again this year. So you've
0: always been in demand as a, uh, a musician, whether composing, arranging, or recording, and you've appeared on some some notable albums, such as uh, or some notable artists, including Slim Dusty, Marsha Hines, Ricky May, Jim Keys, and Tim Finn, just to name a few. You even played the sax solo, as we mentioned before, on I Still Call Australia Home by Peter Allen. Cutting this record has given you some sort of musical immortality. How did you get this gig and can you tell us anything about the recording of this song?
1: It just came about. I'd known Peter from the Deltones days, you know, when when I was with the Deltones, the Allen Brothers uh, were a duo and appeared on Bandstand and so the history was there so I knew him and um, uh, it just came up. I don't know, I I mean, I was doing so much recording session work and they, they needed they thought it'd be great to have a sax solo on this piece. So I got called for it and um, Peter uh, knew I was doing it. And then at the time, I just did, I played on his vocal. So I basically played just at the end of his vocal. So the sax sort of comes in right at the end. I feel- Then um, Peter said, look, I think, would you like to do the flip side as an instrumental? So I said, yeah, sure. So I'm on the other side and playing the tune all All the way way through. through. So they used the same backing uh, minus Peter's voice and the same arrangement exactly, and I just overdubbed the sax part on top. Wow, so so
0: so. you even even played a bigger role in that that album than than most people (laughs) (laughs) realise.
1: Oh, well, I mean, you know, it was just something you did then. And it was great to do it. And it was great to rehook up with him in a different way to what I'd worked with him, you know, years and years before. And, and he was a great artist. And I did work with him a lot. I worked I worked with Peter Allen uh, quite a bit, you know, when he came out and did shows here, I backed him on shows. And so it wasn't anything that it was just a once I did work with him quite a bit. And he was a fantastic artist and very together guy and very smart guy.
0: And a very generous guy from what people say, yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah, he was a lovely guy. He really was. He was a real real gentleman and uh, a very talented songwriter and uh, just amazing musician, yeah
0: part of your career you got to back some amazing artists including frank sinatra sammy davis jr shirley bassey could you just tell us a, a bit about some of the uh the performances and some of the, the memories you've got of being on stage with these legendary artists
1: yes sheldon uh, those sort of things happened quite regularly in australia for example uh, sammy davis jr in particular sammy davis jr and shirley bassey came out here at least once a year and did a week somewhere in the early days it was at places like Chequers which was down near Liverpool Street down there and um, that's where it started so we had nightclubs in Sydney then no longer anymore then after that uh, the venue started to change to places like the Hilton Hotel, um, the Chevron at King's Cross, uh, Natalie Cole came there when she was very young. Before she became very well known, that's Nat King Cole's daughter, and so those sort of things happen on a regular basis. And it was just something that a crew of us were doing. A lot of the musicians that were readers or could read music and did the studio work, uh, we were selected to do those sort of shows. So I was very fortunate to be one of them, and so we did that uh, many, many times.
0: Did you have any sort of personal experiences with people like Sammy Davis or Frank or, or Shirley?
1: Well, uh, I went to, on tour with Shirley Bassey quite a few times, so we went you know, to Adelaide and Perth and travelled around with her. Uh, Sammy, in general, we, we did travel early in the piece, but as as the world changed and the economy of the world seemed to change, they seemed to travel fewer people. Once they used to travel the whole band. It was like a 17-piece band, and they travelled the whole band. Uh, usually when, um, say, Frank Sinatra or or Sammy Davis Jr. or any of those big acts come out, they usually have at least a musical director and then sometimes they bring a drummer a pianist, sometimes a lead trumpet, uh, something like that. So they travel a few musicians with them. And so as it went on, they would just use a band in Sydney. And then when they went to Melbourne, taking their guys with them, the few guys that they brought from the USA, and just adding, say, the the Melbourne musicians. And then when I went to Perth, so that that happened later in the piece. But for a long time, we did travel. We toured with them, uh, which was great. And so you did get to know them a little bit. They were all very, friendly, but they captured to themselves a bit, um, so you didn't sort of go out fishing with them or you know, stuff like that. You'd generally see them at the show, and then they'd talk to you, and you'd see them after for a little while. When I worked with Sinatra at Sanctuary Cove in 1988, that was uh, just a one-off gig for him. So when we did that, we rehearsed without Frank Sinatra. He, he was somewhere in Sydney, and so we um, were up the Sanctuary Cove, which is sort of the Gold Coast way or whatever and so uh he had his his uh, musical director Bill Miller who's a pianist and Irv Kotler a great drummer who was who'd been with him for years both of them and we rehearsed with them for Frank Sinatra's music but without Frank Sinatra so we just rehearsed all the band parts and so he turned up in the night flew in by helicopter and uh I believe his fee was two and a quarter million or something (laughs) and that was just for uh, I think a It was only about an hour spot, so uh, nice nice work if you can get it. Frank was known as the chairman of
0: the board and a, a voice of his generation. How were the pipes holding up in 1988?
1: Well, he was, he was still singing very, very well. I guess not at his peak, but still still extremely well, still sort of at the top of his game. The, the thing I did notice, and it was quite funny, because the way the stage was situated, which it is usually for a big band set up, when you've got a big band, what I mean is by, you know, four or five trumpets, four trombones, you know, five saxophones and a rhythm section of bass, uh, piano and drums... So, you know, about 17 or 18 people. Uh, Usually the saxophones are down the front and then the trombones are behind and the trumpets are right up at the back because they're the loudest, so they stay up the back. Anyway, so we were very close to Frank Sinatra actually, as close as you could get, and uh, we could sort of see uh, the monitors and uh, in particular the teleprompters, which are the things that newsreaders use at night so they can read the news. We don't see it, but they can see it so they, they don't have to go on memory. Well, Frank's memory obviously wasn't like it was when he was younger, because uh, it was funny, the teleprompters were down the bottom of the stage, but because we were situated right behind him, we could see them, and so it was funny, because at one stage, he was singing The Lady is a Tramp, and I could see the lyrics coming past, she gets too hungry for dinner, <laughs> and I'm looking at these teleprompter with the lyrics to The Lady is a Tramp, thinking, he must have sung this song 10 billion times, but yeah, obviously, he had it there as a safety net. He probably did know it, but just in case he had a a bit of a lapse and it was there. So he wouldn't have done that in his young day, but uh, we've all got to get old, unfortunately.
0: So when you're you're playing and you're watching Sinatra, did you ever have any of those moments like, geez, this is Frank Sinatra?
1: Of course. You grew up listening. Like Sammy Davis Jr. in particular, uh, was somebody that I remembered very well because I loved his impressions. He was the greatest impression. He could do all the movie stars uh, like uh, Humphrey Bogart and uh, James Cagney and all that. And he used to do a great routine of Jerry Lewis and Dean Martin. And I grew up, my father had all those records, you know, Sammy Davis Jr. So I grew up with listening to those people and, of course, Sinatra and uh, not so much Shirley Bassey because she sort of was a bit later on uh, and she's still around and they've long gone uh, up to that uh, big orchestra up in the sky, you know, they've, they've gone. But Shirley Bassey is still alive. So, yeah, it was surreal, you know, it was un- unreal. You're sitting there and, you know, you're working with somebody that is just uh, just so high up on the on the gradient, you know, up high up on the scale that you, you, you are a bit overwhelmed by it, I think. And um, they're very special people, you know, I guess we we only have one Sinatra Sinatra and one Sammy Davis Jr. They were very unique. I believe the artists of the past, uh, they really had something unique going. They were all very, very different. That was the one uh, thing about them. They weren't the same at all. And so they had their own unique style.
0: Some of your most recent recordings have been Feel the Breeze with Steve Murphy in 2007 and Ellen Street, which was released in 2008. The basis on Ellen Street was your son, Lyle. Throughout your career, you've been hailed as one of the finest reed players, arrangers, composers and also educators. You've received adulation from the fans. You've had hit records, played countless of sold-out shows. All of this something should be very proud of. But all of the success, is there any better musical achievement than standing and sharing the studio on the stage with your son?
1: No, that was great. We, we had a great time doing it and it was a real uh, challenge for him and he did very, very well on it. He played um, double bass, the acoustic bass, the big one, because he plays electric bass as well, and, but I wanted the double bass on that and he did a very admirable job and helped me produce it as well. Uh, he was co-producer on it, so it had a lot to do with the production and um, putting it together and in and the final end, and, and it was. It was great. We had a lot of fun doing it together, and we had a good band, and it was all pretty much original material, the whole album. We just only played one standard, I think, and the rest are tunes that I wrote, and then uh, my son Lyle and myself co-wrote the other one, which was a bit of a tongue-in-cheek fun thing that where we uh, call relative conversations, relative conversations, you know, because we're relatives and we just play things against each other and sort of poke fun at each other. So it was good. It was really good. We don't get to play much. We have done some gigs together and, uh, and we usually have a little play together at Christmas with our grandson, with, with, with my grandson, with his son, uh, who's eight. And he usually plays piano and sings, or he'll sing, and I play the piano, and Lyle plays the bass. So we get together and have a Christmas, bit of a Christmas jam. Uh, but that's about it.
0: <laughs> so, yeah, you you've got two sons, uh, Jason and Lyle. What did they think of Dad as a uh, a rock and a pop star or did they really not care?
1: Well, it's just, you know, I think when they're young, Daddy just goes to work and, you know, Mummy says, oh, Daddy's – where's Daddy? Oh, Daddy's – you know, they don't take too much notice of it. I've always had a, a soundproof room. I've always, I've got one now out the back and so it's soundproof so I can go in there and make noise and also, you know, you can – You can get out of the house because you know there's nothing worse than you know, somebody in the house and there's noise all the time. Even if it's music, it's still going to annoy you because it's practice. And sometimes you're practicing things that that don't sound like songs, you know, so to you know, so it's not always enjoyable. So then I was in my room most of the time and I was writing a lot and Uh, My wife, uh, Rhonda, sort of had to take care of the kids. So I think it was hard in the beginning. Uh, And, I, you know, I wish I had had more time to spend with my kids then. But but you don't. You're running from one thing to the other. You're young. You're trying to pay off your mortgages and you're trying to do whatever you have to do when you're young. So I, I think you regret not having. I spend much more time with my grandson now and I have more time to do it, which I enjoy. I wish I had had that liberty but I don't think you do when you when no, you no
0: exactly yeah uh, forging when, your career when you're, you're a, the breadwinner
1: yep. and you've got to go out and you know uh, bring in the bacon I, I think you you miss out on a lot of things so but I think you know they knew what I did and uh, and probably weren't that interested in it in a way <laughs> you know that just that's what Daddy does and, and we we play and do other things but later on Lyle got really interested in uh, music uh, when he heard the Beatles. He was a big Beatle fan and Paul McCartney. And so he come up to me one day and he said, look, I want to play the the bass. I said, what? You want to play the bass? Because he'd been learning the piano and all that. And he said, yeah, yeah. And I said, okay, I'll buy your bass, but you've got to practice it. You know, if I buy it for you, you've got to practice. I'm not going to, you know, you're going to have to do it. So, yeah, he got stuck in his practice and he got really good very early on and uh, very quickly and he was playing with Daley Wilson, with the Warren Daley, actually with Warren Daley's big band when he was about 16 or 17. Okay, yep. Uh, Warren gave him a break to play in there and he played with, uh, with Warren's band for quite some time and now he still works as a musician um, playing around and we don't get to play together much, unfortunately, but uh, he's still out there doing it and, uh, and uh, looking after his young son and having a good life. Yeah,
0: exactly. Yeah. Doing what he loves.
1: Yeah, doing yeah. what he loves, yeah. So you're still
0: performing around the place. Uh, are you still writing or any future plans to record again?
1: I don't know. I, I often think I'd love to record something and uh, do, do another album and I may do it. I seem to have long periods of writer's block. You know, and all of a sudden something starts to happen. So, um, you know, I'm always fiddling around writing little things and working on little things. But at the time of uh, Ellen Street, I had a a real rush of ideas that seemed to come all at once, uh, which was good. So I got got them down as quick as I could because you've got to because sometimes you you get an idea and then if you don't write it down, you forget about it. So sometimes it's good to record it, but uh, I'm not that great with technology. I wish I was, and I wish I was better with computer music and stuff because that's the way most people do it. Um, I'm sort of a bit in the dark ages with that stuff. I don't do much of that, but I think it's very handy because you can pop things down and you can do things. So I might get more into that. I'm sort of, I should. (laughs) No
0: worries, Cole. Thanks very much for your time, mate. Great Sheldon, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening, and thanks to Cole for your time, and thanks to Airs Rock for the music. If you enjoyed the episode, please click subscribe, and if you could leave a review or rating at iTunes, that would be unreal. If you have any guest requests or suggestions, you can email me at mycoast2 at bigpond.com. That's M Y C O A S T, the number two, at bigpond.com. Or like our Facebook page. At all Australian music stories. I'd like to thank you again for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the episode as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you. And until next time, hail, hail Australian rock and roll.
5: Hi, this is Molly. You've just listened to a podcast brought to you by Myco's Promotions. Written, produced, and presented by my dad, Sheldon the Kangaroo Kid. This is Molly Kidd saying to my good friend, Holly Kirsten, Hit it, girl! I've got something to tell you about a place that I've been to, and now, now I know the world is so much wider than I